We're reading from Genesis 21. Genesis 21. And that can be found on page 15 in, in the Pew Bible. And please follow along with me as I read. Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of the slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a great nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or my descendants or my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me with the land, and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took the sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, 
what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning, Bethel. So on June 3rd, 2017, a rock climber named Alex Honnold became the first person to ever free solo El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. If you're unfamiliar with the term free soloing, it means that you're climbing without using ropes or any safety equipment at all. It's just you, your clothes, your climbing shoes, and a chalk bag to help you with your grip. So there's absolutely zero margin for error. Depending on how high up you are, if you fall, there's a good chance that you are not going to make it. That's definitely true on El Capitan. I think we have a picture this morning that we can put up. So it's a granite rock formation that's about 3,000 feet tall. To put that in perspective, it's about 300 feet higher than the tallest building in the world and it is more than double the height of the Empire State Building. And it's not an easy climb either. So experienced climbers uh, can often take a few days to get to the top. What they do is they bring equipment so that they can camp on the side of the rock face. So those things considered, it's no surprise that Alex, Hon that Alex Honnold's free solo of El Capitan, which he did, by the way, in just under four hours, generated a lot of attention. In an article called uh, El Capitan, My El Capitan, which is kind of funny, author Daniel Duane said this of Honnold's achievement. He said, I believe that it should be celebrated as one of the great athletic feats of any kind ever. If that sounds a bit hyperbolic or overblown to you, Tommy Caldwell, who is one of the best rock climbers in the world, he referred to what Alex Honnold did as, quote, the moon landing of free soloing. So it was a big deal. Uh, a documentary was also made of Alex's ascent. It's called Free Solo. Uh, if you're a fan of the Oscars or if you watched it or read about it, uh, Free Solo won the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. In the documentary, you actually get to watch um, Alex scale El Capitan. And leading up to the climb, and especially during it, one thing that's, that's striking is how nervous everyone else other than Alex is. So his girlfriend, she actually leaves before he makes the attempt, and she's filmed in tears on the side of the road. Uh, a cameraman, one of the cameramen who's on the ground, he has to turn and look away during some of the harder parts of the climb. And Another cameraman, who himself is an accomplished rock climber, a guy named Jimmy Chen, he produced the documentary, he actually cries after Alex makes it to the top because he's so relieved that he didn't fall. So why were these people so fearful? 
They know that Alex is an accomplished rock climber, one of the best in the world. They know he has free soloed many formations prior to this one. They know he's physically capable of doing this. They know he's actually trained for years to do this very climb. But in spite of all those things, they also know that one mistake could lead to his death. After all, he is human. A bird or worse, a camera or drone being used in the documentary could fly by, cause him to lose his focus, and cause him to fall. A piece of the rock could break off on his hand and take him with it. It could rain. The rock could get slippery, and he could fall off. He could just get tired and make a mistake. In other words, despite his world-class ability, he can't be trusted with 100% confidence to make it to the top. That's why the people in the documentary are so afraid. I mean, I, I've seen it, and I know that he makes it to the top, and it's still nerve-wracking to watch. But thankfully, it's not like that with God. He is the everlasting, all-powerful, all-knowing God, the creator of heaven and earth. Nothing can stop his plans. Nothing can cause him to fail to bring his will to pass. He will accomplish everything he purposes, everything he promises, without fail, without exception, every single time. If you're new with us, we're currently in a series in the book of Genesis called In the Beginning, God. This morning, we're looking at chapter 21, which if you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 15. And in this chapter, there are a number of familiar faces. It includes Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael. And in this chapter, God's power, faithfulness, and grace are on full display toward these people. Despite Abraham and Sarah's wavering faith and all the obstacles in the way, God provides them with a child named Isaac, the promised son. Despite Ishmael's mocking of Isaac, God rescues him, the disdainful firstborn, and his mother Hagar in the wilderness. And despite Abraham's past dealings with a king called Abimelech, God provides for him the blessed sojourner in the land. So let's look at Genesis 21, 1 to 7 in our first point, the promised son. So in these verses, God gives Abraham and Sarah the child he promised them. After years of waiting, they finally get to meet their baby boy. But before we read this text, to help us better understand what's happening and to help us feel the weight of this event, let's spend a little bit of time remembering Abraham and Sarah's story. We're going to go through some of Genesis here. I believe we're going to have the scripture references on the screen. So we're first introduced to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 11 and 12. So there in Genesis 11:30, the text tells us something significant about Sarah. It says, now, Sarah was barren. She had no child. That would have been a tragic fate uh, for a woman in Sarah's time. But hope seems to rise in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. There, God makes the first of his grand promises to Abraham. He says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's a wonderful promise, but it does leave us to wonder, how is God going to make a great nation of Abraham when he doesn't have any children? And it seems especially complicated by the fact that he's 75 years old at this point, which would make Sarah, his wife, 65. So how in the world is God going to do this? Well, Abraham apparently wondered that too. In Genesis 15, 2-3, he says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. But God graciously dispels Abraham's doubts, and he makes him another great promise, which he later guarantees with a covenant. In Genesis 15, 4-5, the Lord says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. But time goes on. And after 10 years of childlessness in the land of Canaan, which puts Abraham at about 85 and Sarah 75, they agree to have a child through other means. In Genesis 16:2, Sarah puts it like this. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So Abram, Abraham takes Hagar, Sarah's servant, as a wife, and she conceives. But they soon find out that there are no shortcuts in God's economy. God accomplishes his purposes and his perfect timing and any attempts to take matters into one, one's own hands only leads to hardship and pain. In Abraham and Sarah's case, that comes immediately when Hagar looks on Sarah with contempt after she conceives. And as we'll see in chapter 21, it continues even after Isaac is born. So Abraham, at the age of 86, has a child named Ishmael through Hagar. So the question at this point is, is Ishmael the promised son God guaranteed over a decade ago? Well, 13 more years pass, and when Abraham is 99, the Lord appears to him again in Genesis 17, 4-8, and confirms his covenant promises to him. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." But this time, God also clearly reveals that the promised offspring 
would be a son born to Abraham by Sarah. So listen to that interaction from Genesis 17, 15 to 21. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear, bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Well, soon after that, God appears to Abraham and again tells him that in about a year, he will return to Abraham and Sarah will have a son. This time, in Genesis 18, 10 to 15, we get Sarah's reaction. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. So, to summarize, in Genesis 18, it's been about 24 years since God's original promise to Abraham in chapter 12. 24 years. Sometimes it's really easy to miss that. We can read through the text rather quickly, getting from chapter 12 to chapter 18 and not realize it, but 24 years, that's a long time. And that time has been filled with ups and downs for Abraham and Sarah. It's been a roller coaster. They've had wonderful moments of great faith and other moments of sin and unbelief. But now God gets specific. The appointed time is near. Sarah will have a child in about a year. So fast forward one year, and when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah 90, God makes good on his promise. Verses 1 to 7 of our text for this morning, chapter 21, describes it this way. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? God keeps his word like he always does. Despite Abraham and Sarah's wavering faith, despite their ages, 
despite Sarah's barrenness, he gives them the son he promised. Three times in verses one to two, God's faithfulness is highlighted. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Absolutely not. Nothing can prevent God from accomplishing his purposes. He is faithful to make good on every single one of his promises. I hope that that is encouraging to you today. It can sometimes be easy to read a story like this and intellectually agree with or grasp what it says about God. But it can be harder to read a story like this and really believe that what it says about God is true for me. If that's you, well, rest assured, God's character doesn't change. If he was faithful to fulfill his word back then, he's faithful to fulfill his word now. If he was able to do the impossible back then, he is able to do the impossible now. But also keep in mind, if God did everything at the appointed time back then, remember, it took 25 years for this promise to be fulfilled. He also does everything at his appointed time now. You may be waiting on God to answer a prayer or fulfill a promise this morning. Maybe you're suffering. You're pleading with God to come to your aid. Maybe you are longing to see a friend or a family member turn from their sin and turn in faith to Jesus, and you are asking God to intervene. Maybe you're battling against a sin and you're asking God to deliver you. Maybe you're seeing all the brokenness and pain in this world or even in your own heart, and you are praying for Jesus to return as he said he would and put everything to rights. Maybe that's you, and maybe you feel like God has forgotten you. If so, hear this encouragement from Ray Ortland, commenting on the vastness of the universe and the vastness of our solar system. He says, quote, why did God do that? In other words, why did he make this universe like it is? Because we deeply believe he has forgotten us, or at least he's forgotten me. He probably loves y'all, but my life, I have fallen through the cracks. He goes through a whole day, never gives me a thought. I deeply believe that. And Isaiah gets up in my face. He says, no, not one is missing. You're not missing. You're not far from his heart. His eye is upon you at all times, God is not too great to notice you. God is too great to overlook you. Genesis 21 and the whole counsel of God's word tells you to wait on the Lord and trust him. He loves you. He cares for you. He always does what is right and best in his perfect timing. And when it seems like he's delaying, when it seems like he's far from you, remember Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
That doesn't mean God's going to give us everything, he, everything we want. Thankfully, he doesn't do that. But it does mean that God's going to give us everything we need, everything we need to persevere in our faith and make us more like Christ, everything we need to make it all the way home. In this passage, notice, too, Abraham and Sarah's reactions to the birth of their son. Abraham responds with immediate obedience. He names the boy Isaac, as God commanded him in Genesis 17, 19. And he circumcises him, as God commanded him in Genesis 17, 19 to 24. Sarah responds differently, though. It's not that she doesn't respond in obedience, but she erupts in joy praise, laughter. Earlier, when God told Abraham that he would have a son through Sarah, remember, both he and Sarah laughed. Back then, their laughter seemed to stem from unbelief. But now, Isaac, whose name means he laughs, is here. And the laughter that was once provoked by doubt is now motivated by pure joy. After all, who would have thought that Sarah at age 90 would have a son? God is an expert at turning sorrow into joy. He does it here for Abraham and Sarah, and he's done it for us through the gospel. Isaac is a miracle baby, to be sure, but his birth points us to the miracle baby, Jesus Christ the far-off descendant of Abraham, he was born of a virgin. Fully God and fully man, he lived a life of perfect obedience to God. As a substitute, he died on the cross for sinners and paid the penalty for sin. Three days later, he rose victorious from the dead, conquering Satan, sin, and death. And the promise for everyone is that if you turn away from your sin and trust Jesus and him alone for salvation, you will be forgiven, declared not guilty, but righteous instead, and made a part of Abraham's family of faith. So if you are trusting Jesus this morning, that's you. You're a new creation in Christ. You are righteous before God. And Get this, you are one of the offspring of Abraham that God promised in Genesis. And if you're not trusting Jesus today, you can get in on this right now. Turn away from your sin and ask Jesus to save you, and he will this very moment. He will make you a part of the family of faith. This is good news, right? So, yes, we do have reason in our world to lament, some more than others, and we shouldn't minimize that. Lamenting over what is broken is a right and good response. But even in our lament, joy can shine through. Through the power of God's Holy Spirit, we can, like Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10, be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We can be happy in Jesus. And why is that the case? Because God, through Jesus, has done the impossible. Jesus rose from the dead. And by grace through faith, he has saved us and spiritually raised us from the dead too. And a day is coming in the future when Jesus will return and raise us from the dead to dwell with him forever. So God showed his faithfulness and grace to Abraham and Sarah by giving them Isaac, the promised son. In Genesis 21, his faithful, gracious character is also on display 
toward Hagar and Ishmael. And this is our second point, the disdainful firstborn. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Abraham, Abraham and Sarah's joy over their son continues here. When Isaac is weaned, which at that time, that would have taken place around age two or three, Abraham makes a feast to celebrate. But unfortunately, the laughter that was present earlier in the chapter takes a negative turn here. Ishmael, who would have been somewhere around 16 years old at this point, laughs at Isaac. It's not entirely clear what he does, but it is likely the case that he's mocking Isaac, that whatever he's doing is showing disdain for Isaac as the heir of God's promise. That's a serious offense. Remember again God's initial promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So when Sarah sees Ishmael laughing, she reacts angrily. She says to Abraham in verse 10, cast out, which, by the way, that's the same word used for Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and Cain in Genesis 4. She says, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now, we don't know if Sarah's motives are entirely pure here, but notice that she's not wrong. Isaac is the promised son. He, not Ishmael, is the heir of God's covenant. God clearly stated that already in Genesis 17, 19 to 21. That text says, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. But nevertheless, given that, Verse 11 of chapter 21 confirms that Sarah's command to cast out Hagar and Ishmael was very displeasing to Abraham. That makes sense, right? Ishmael may not be the covenant heir, but he is Abraham's son. Being asked to send him away would undoubtedly be hard. But God intervenes and tells Abraham to do what Sarah says. In verse 12, he tells Abraham... Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God reminds Abraham of the promise, but notice that he doesn't forget Ishmael. In verse 13, he says, And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Both Isaac and Ishmael are sons of Abraham. And both have received promises from the Lord. And so Abraham, trusting God to care for his child, acts in faith and does a really hard thing. Verse 14 says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. 
once they're in the wilderness, the situation quickly turns sour. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, I mean, not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. That's hard to read. I think that should be hard to read. A mother lays down her child and walks off because she can't bear to see him die. And then she does about the, about the only thing she can do at this point. She lifts up her voice and weeps. Earlier we said that Isaac means he laughs. It may be good to point out at this point that Ishmael means God hears. Back in chapter 16, Ishmael gets that name because God hears Hagar's affliction. After Hagar conceives and looks at Sarah with contempt, Sarah deals harshly with her, and she flees to the wilderness. The angel of the Lord meets her in the wilderness and tells her to go back to Sarah and submit to her. But before she leaves, the angel of the Lord gives her a promise. In Genesis 16, 10 to 13, he says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Now in chapter 21, Hagar once again finds herself in the wilderness. But here, the Lord doesn't hear Hagar in her affliction. Apparently, Ishmael is also crying out to the Lord. Look at verses 17 to 21. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up! Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, there's a lot of things that we could say about this passage, but I want to point out two. First, Think about Abraham's faith and obedience here. After Ishmael laughs at Isaac, God tells Abraham to listen to Sarah and send Hagar and Ishmael away. And he promises Abraham that he's going to make a great nation of Ishmael, who, by the way, isn't even referred to by name in this chapter. So God asks Abraham to send his son away, trusting that God will be faithful to his promise and keep his word. This isn't the only time God asked Abraham to do something like this. In Genesis 22, which Pastor Chris is going to cover next week, God tests Abraham and commands him to do something difficult in regard to Isaac. So if, if I were to tell you God asks Abraham to do something difficult in regard to his child, and Abraham trusting God to make good on his promise and do what's right, obeys in faith. And he sets out early in the morning to do what God called him to do. 
you wouldn't know if I was talking about Genesis 21 or Genesis 22. In each case, Abraham trusts the Lord and responds in faith and obedience. So I think a good question for us this morning is, what difficult thing is the Lord calling us to do, calling you to do? Where do you need to trust him and respond with obedience? Maybe it's to confess your sin and right a wrong you've committed. As Del Ralph Davis says, quote, sometimes when God leads us through or out of the circumstances we have wrongfully arranged, and remember, Sarah and Abraham are in that position here in Genesis 21, sometimes there is no painless, ouchless way out. So maybe it's that. Confess your sin, right or wrong you've committed. But maybe it's not that at all. Maybe it's to share the gospel with a friend, neighbor, coworker, classmate, or family member who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe it's to open up to your community group and really share where you're struggling or where you're seeing the Lord at work in your life. Maybe it's to leave the comforts of the United States and devote your life to sharing the gospel with unreached peoples overseas. Maybe it's to push past the fear of failure with your own family and begin reading the Bible and praying with your children. Whatever it is, it could be a number of things. Seek the Lord's will in prayer and Bible study. Talk about this with your community group and obediently follow God's leading. He'll provide for you. You can trust him. But second, in this passage, don't miss the grace that God shows Hagar and Ishmael. One writer, a guy named Alan P. Ross, points this out specifically in regard to Hagar. He says, God desires to be the God of the outcast, the rejected, the abused, the dying. The plight of Hagar should draw sympathy from the reader, for she was an unfortunate woman caught in the web of Abraham and Sarah and their faltering efforts to achieve their destiny and she was the abused and rejected woman who, with the birth, birth of Isaac, was suddenly very much in the way. The deliverance of Hagar and Ishmael should evoke hope in the reader, for God did not let them die in the wilderness, but gave them a new life and a great future. Now, we don't know if Hagar truly trusted the Lord. We don't know that with Ishmael either, but we do know that God showed Hagar grace that he cared about this woman who, though she wasn't guiltless, was suffering. We certainly need to model our Lord's compassion in that arena. As God's people, we need to be on the lookout for ways we can minister to outcasts and the hurting. This may be something uh, to discuss in your community groups this week. Take time to reflect together on that and pray about how God may be calling you to action. As we've said before, we want Bethel to be a safe place for sufferers. We want to minister here well to those who are hurting. In this passage too, though, remember Ishmael. Here, he sins against Isaac, perhaps showing disdain for the true covenant heir. The Apostle Paul actually picks that up in Galatians 4, and in verse 29, he says that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. And make no mistake, Ishmael's actions had consequences. He was sent away from the safety of his father's protection because of what happened. Yet, in spite of his mockery of Isaac, in spite of the fact that he's not the heir of God's eternal covenant, 
God shows him and his mother grace by rescuing them in the wilderness. Del Ralph Davis comments on this, and he writes, Just because folks are not part of the covenant people does not mean that God does not do them good. On the contrary, their lives are held in his hands and he sustains them. God's pity in such cases means that we have no reason to write such people off our compassion. I think that's right in line with Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. He says, you've heard, it, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God shows grace to the just and the unjust, to the saved and the unsaved, to those inside and those outside the covenant. He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. He makes the sun shine on the just and the unjust. And as those who once were on the outside, but who have been brought in through the blood of Jesus, we should be quick to extend grace too. We certainly need wisdom from the Lord here, especially when there is sin involved, as that may affect how we respond. But the command remains. Following in Jesus' footsteps, we have to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So in wisdom, with love, and with God's help, let's seek to show compassion to all, to do everyone good, and to point all to Jesus, who alone can meet their every need. So God is gracious, he is faithful in giving Abraham and Sarah the son he promised. He is gracious and he is faithful in rescuing Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness. And finally, he is gracious and faithful toward Abraham, the blessed sojourner. This is chapter 21, verses 22 to 34. So in Genesis 20, Abraham meets a man, man named Abimelech, the king of Gerar, which is in the southern portion of the land of Canaan. In that chapter, Abraham, again, this is the second time he did this, he says that Sarah, his wife, is actually his sister in order to save his own skin. And because of that, Abimelech, the king, takes Sarah into his house. Thankfully, the Lord prevents Abimelech from touching Sarah. And he reveals the truth about Sarah to Abimelech in a dream. And he warns Abimelech. He tells Abimelech to return Sarah to Abraham and to have Abraham pray over him so that he and his household will live and not die. So Abraham, through his lie, puts Abimelech in a really rough position. Abimelech could die over this. So Abimelech, when he's confronted by the Lord in a dream, he quickly obeys the Lord. Now to skip over that chapter a bit, let me read the ending to you. This is Genesis 20, 14 to 18. It says, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham 
and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now we are at the end of chapter 21, and Abraham meets Abimelech again. And based on what occurred earlier in chapter 20, Abimelech says this in verses 22 to 24. God, God is with you in all that you do. Remember why he would say that. God's with Abraham in all that he does. God showed up and intervened in a big way in chapter 20. Abimelech got to see firsthand that the Lord's with him. So God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So Abraham promises to deal kindly with Abimelech and his descendants. And in verses 25 to 32, Abimelech agrees that a well in the land belongs to Abraham. Starting in verse 25, the text reads, When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you, these seven ewe, ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, the place was called Beersheba, which Beersheba means either um, it means either the well of seven or the well of the oath. So, therefore, the place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. So this may seem like a relatively trivial exchange. I mean, how interesting can a well be? But one commentator, G.J. Winham, he points out the significance of this in the covenant that Abraham and Abimelech make. He says, quote, Under the treaty, Abraham secured legal rights to a well near Beersheba. For a herdsman totally dependent on guaranteed access to water for his flocks, this was a most important provision. So the well is important for one, because they need water. They need to live. Then he says this, this was the first foothold that Abraham secured in the land of Canaan. So do you see what's happening? God, God didn't just promise Abraham offspring. In Genesis 17, 8, God says, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. They're in the southern portion of Canaan here. And Abraham secures rights to this well, establishing a foothold in the land. So here, in this chapter, God's showing his faithfulness to Abraham, not only by giving him the son he promised, but also by increasing his presence in the land of Canaan. 
And verses 33 to 34 tell us that Abraham responds with worship. The text says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now, notice the name that is used for God here. Yahweh, the everlasting God. And notice the, how Abraham is described here. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Everlasting God, sojourner. Delroth Davis explains the significance of that for us. He says, Yahweh is El Olam, the everlasting God. The idea may refer to reaching as far back in the past as one can imagine, and or it may refer to the farthest reaches of the future, in which case Yahweh is the one who holds all that future and all his people's fortunes in it. Yahweh is the forever God. But note the following verb in verse 34. Abraham sojourned, a verb that connotes a passing, fragile, temporary, I don't really belong kind of life. It's quite an ironic contrast. In his fleeting life, he worships an everlasting God. If Yahweh once says, I will be God to you, then there is no condition or circumstance when that can stop being true. He wraps your sojourning in his foreverness. We are sojourners and strangers on this planet. This is not our home. We are here but for a moment. We are waiting for the day when Jesus is going to come back and fulfill every promise of God. And rest assured, he's going to come back and fulfill every promise. One day, he's going to return. And Revelation 21.3, or let's read Revelation 21.1-5. to It'll be brought to pass. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, and notice the covenant language here, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God's word is trustworthy and true. God is faithful to fulfill every single promise that he makes. He won't let you down ever. He shows that faithfulness. He shows that grace in Genesis 21 to Abraham and Sarah. He shows that faithfulness and grace to Ishmael and Hagar even. And he shows his faithfulness and grace again at the end of the chapter to Abraham as he's continuing uh, his presence in the land of Canaan. The Lord is faithful. And because that's true, we have every reason to celebrate. Again, we should be, in this life, sorrowful 
yet always rejoicing? While that's true, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, there is no reason we should not be the happiest people on this planet. So the fighter verse for this week, Psalm 100, 1 to 3. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We are the people of Yahweh, the everlasting God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for you. We are grateful that you are faithful, that you are gracious, that you are merciful. Lord, we are thankful that you show your common grace to everyone, that you cause it to rain on the just and the unjust. You cause the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Lord, we are so thankful. We celebrate the fact that you have shown your special grace to us, your people, that you have redeemed us by grace through faith in Jesus. You have recreated us in Christ. We are covered by the blood of the Lamb. We are your people. You are our God. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture. Thank you, Father. Lord, please fill us up with joy. Lord, fill us up with joy even in our affliction. Lord, teach us what it means to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Teach us what it means to live a life of faithful obedience to you while we are sojourners here and now on planet Earth. Lord, we want to honor you. We want to be a light for you in this city. We want to serve others well. We want to bring glory to your name. So please, please work powerfully among us and bring these things to pass. Please do it for our good. Please do it for the good of those in our city. And Lord, please do it for the glory of your name and for the sake of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.